Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Tim Durrant. I'm a programme director here, and I'm delighted that we are joined by Angela Rayner, MP for Ashton Underline, Deputy Leader of the Labour Party and Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. The last time Angela was here, she spoke about Labour's vision for cleaning up politics, and I'm really glad that she's chosen to come back to the Institute to talk in more detail about Labour's plans for a new independent ethics and integrity commission. In terms of how things will run, we're going to have some opening remarks from Fleur Anderson MP, who is uh, the MP for Putney and Shadow Paymaster General, and then Angela will make her speech. We'll then go to a couple of questions from me and then the media and then open to the floor and online. We are live tweeting this event from our at IFG events account using hashtag IFG Rainer. So please do follow online if you would like to. And for those watching online, you can submit your questions via Slido and I will try and take as many questions from online as well as in the room when we get there. So I'm going to hand over to Fleur to make some opening remarks. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. My name's Fleur Anderson. I'm the MP for Putney, but the, for the last two and a half years, I've been the Shadow Paymaster General serving on the Labour front bench. And I'd like to start by well, thanking the Institute for your government, your warm welcome here. And it's always a pleasure to be back here, as we have been many times and will be again. And I can see today in the room we've got representatives from the Committee for Standards in Public Life, Spotlight on Corruption, the University of Liverpool, Transparency International, the Cabinet Office, and I can see many more. And there are many more online as well. Many vital stakeholders and voices. I speak for Angela and for the whole team when I say thank you. Thank you to you for working day in and day out, sometimes against plenty of resistance, to uphold standards in public life. I am really heartened that there's been such an interest in our work on this and in this event today. It's only with your support and partnership that we can achieve our ambitious plan to clean up Britain's politics. And after the past 13 years, we really need a deep clean. It can't be just a sweeping under the carpet. The Conservatives have let of 13 years of scandal and contempt for the rules and erosion of trust in politics and politicians. But the sad thing is that we've been here before. There's a sense of deja vu. Under the Conservatives in the 1990s, the public ran out of patience with the constant stream of sleaze and scandal that engulfed the government of the day. They then looked to Labour to clean up the mess. And we can take great pride in our record in government in this area. It was Labour who codified the ministerial code as we know it today. It was Labour that introduced the Freedom of Information Act that has revolutionised government transparency. And it was Labour who established the position of the anti-corruption champion, which, incidentally, the Conservatives have left vacant for over a year now. Did we always get it right? No. But those who fell short, suffered the consequences, took responsibility for their actions. The important regulatory bodies, led by decent, hard-working public servants, were respected and were followed, and that is the difference. The system held, and it worked, because ethics and integrity mattered and matter under Labour. Labour cleaned up our politics once, and under the leadership of my brilliant colleague, Angela Rayner, we will do it again. We are determined. We're developing a plan that's bold, a plan that will bake in standards into the system for the long term. 
So without any further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Angela Rayner, MP, Deputy Leader of the Labour Party and Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. Angela. Uh, thank you, Fleur, and thanks to everyone for being here today, and particularly thanks to Tim and his colleagues at the Institute for Government for hosting us. And the IFG's research and your forum for open discussion are powerful tools to improve our country's government. As we inch closer to a general election, the role of the IFG has never been more important to policymakers, public servants, and ultimately the public interest. The last time I was here speaking on the topic of standards, a little over 18 months ago, the government was embroiled in scandal. Ministers were under siege and rumours of a reshuffle were swirling round Westminster. So a lot has changed since then, <laughs> and perhaps some things haven't. But since I made that speech, the theory of good chaps has been tested to the point of destruction. It has long been assumed, mostly by those who think themselves as good chaps, that all those who rise to high office will be good chaps. People who understand and respect the rules and can be trusted to follow them. The system relies on leaders acting in good faith. A system that has surely now been toppled. Some of those at the top were not such good chaps after all. Ministers willing to find new ways to circumvent the rules or ignore them for their own political advantage. Take Boris Johnson just as a random example. A very effective confidence trickster. He certainly sounded like the typical good chap. But I don't think there are many serious people who would call him that now. From unlawfully proroguing Parliament to breeding a culture of rule breaking at the heart of Downing Street during a global pandemic, then lying about it. He tried to abolish the independent parliamentary standards system when he didn't like the ruling about his mate Owen Patterson. Then he rewrote the ministerial code to suit his own interests, putting the very standards that underpin our democracy through the shredder. But as much as he'd like it to be, this isn't all about him. His colleagues on the Conservative benches, including the current Prime Minister, enabled and propped him up. Rishi Sunak, as Chancellor, watched as Britain's standards regime was taken apart piece by piece. Rather than choosing to rebuild it, he chose to preserve the regime he inherited from his predecessor. A system that saw the previous two ethics watchdogs walk out in disgust. His argument seems to be the one that I opened with. The system doesn't need changing because he's a good chap. But I'm afraid Boris Johnson wasn't just one bad apple. Over the last decade, standards in public life have been relentlessly eroded by Tory sleaze and scandal. From serious breaches of the ministerial code to the revolving door between ministerial office and lobbying. Where resignations used to be rare, they've become the norm. Ministers have been forced from government on misconduct grounds every three months under the current Prime Minister's leadership. If you include the four Conservative Prime Ministers forced out since 2010, a total of 39 
cabinet ministers have either been sacked, quit in disgrace or resigned. And the rot starts at the top. Just weeks ago, we were in the absurd situation where the chair of the advisory committee on business appointments wrote to the government to criticise the rules that his organisation is responsible for upholding. Lord Pickles, a former Conservative Party chairman, joined a host of independent regulators to call for a wholesale reform of the business appointment rules and stronger restrictions on lobbying jobs for former ministers. In a letter to the Deputy Prime Minister, Lord Pickles said, the current rules were designed to offer guidance when good chaps could be relied on to observe the letter and the spirit of the rules. And he goes on to say, if the good chaps ever existed, that time has long passed and the contemporary world has outgrown the rules. New areas of corruption are not monitored because they were not envisaged when the rules were drawn up. Holding any position in public life should mean upholding the highest standards of ethics and integrity. But the cronyism, sleaze and scandal we've seen over the past decade has undermined trust in politics and public life at home and abroad. This year, Britain has received its lowest score on record on Transparency International's annual Corruption Perceptions Index. The drop sends a powerful message about the decline in public standards, which is in no doubt being noticed on the world stage. The sense that Britain is becoming a corrupt country is deeply damaging to our international standing, to the health of our democracy and the success of our economy. We can take that lesson from Rishi Sunak's predecessor, though we'd like us to forget her. She showed pretty clearly what happens when rules and institutions are recklessly undermined. Our ability to attract international investment and trade is directly related to the faith and the stability of our government. We are living with the consequences of that faith being undermined. So this really matters. Misconduct and sleaze has a direct impact on a government's ability to deliver for the public. Transparent and accountable government is key to delivery. Cleaning up politics is about ensuring government actually delivers for the people. While Rishi Sunak was distracted appointing his latest ethics advisor or rehashing the ministerial code or dealing with an investigation into his own deputy or the resignations of three senior ministers, during all of these times, he was distracted from delivering on the people's priorities and failing to prepare for a cost of living crisis or prevent a housing crisis. By failing to prepare, he prepared to fail and fail he has. Rising bills, soaring food prices, families unable to make ends meet, a crashed economy, a Tory mortgage bombshell. It is working people who pay the price every single time. This is not public service. Politics has to work for people, not for politicians. We're not the masters. The people are the masters, and we're their servants. 
Now, I want to pay tribute to a Conservative. I know I don't do that very often. But Sir John Major must be commended for his work in establishing the Committee on Standards in Public Life nearly three decades ago. He set up this independent body in the wake of the last bout of sleaze and scandal running rife in the Tory party. He at least recognised that there was a problem. And for more than 30 years, it has promoted and defended the seven principles of public life, the Nolan principles, and it continues to speak truth to power. A recent CSPL report found that proper procedure is too easily ignored or disregarded while the systems that are supposed to uphold the rules were not working well. And as Sir John said of the committee in his foreword to the report, the committee will never be redundant. A minority will evade or misinterpret the rules of proper behaviour. The rules will always need regular updating to meet changing expectations in many areas. For 18 months and three Conservative Prime Ministers on, this government hasn't even had the decency to respond. We heard yesterday that the government will respond to their report by the summer recess, but I'm not holding my breath. Of course, we now have a Prime Minister who promised to bring integrity, professionalism and accountability to the job. But it's clearer each day that he's failing to deliver on any of them. Now look, I don't believe most people who go into public life do so with bad intentions, far from it. Bad chaps are a feature of our system, but it's not in our DNA. But they are a feature of our system, which is ill-equipped to deal with it. As the full saying goes, a few bad apples rot the barrel. The best protection is a system that is intolerant to abuse of power with proper checks and balances. A system with foundations that can withstand the changing weather, even if that weather is a hurricane threatening to rip the house down. But to build that foundation, we need to replace the weakened standards regime with new architecture. We need to empower the public servants dedicated to protecting our democracy and raising standards within government. And that's why Labour has a plan to restore standards in public life. We will clean up politics so by the end of our first term, people don't just feel better off, they can see that politics is working for them. So today, I'm setting out how the Labour government will clean up our politics and restore that trust. Never again will a Prime Minister and ministers be able to break the rules with impunity because the rules are too weak. Under the next Labour government, the rules will be strengthened. Enforcement will be toughened up, independent of political control. Labour's new Independent Ethics and Integrity Commission will oversee and enforce standards in government, ending the current situation in which the Prime Minister is the judge and the jury on every case of ministerial misconduct. We will create a new, genuinely independent ethics and integrity commission, a more robust system to replace the failing aspects of the old system and restore public trust. This starts with replacing the COBRA with a more robust system for former ministers who are seeking new appointments. With former ministers facing clear sanctions for breaking lobbying rules, 
not just the possibility of being overlooked for an honour, but consequences that they can feel in their pockets. And second, the Commission will subsume the independent advisor on ministerial interests. It will have the power to initiate investigations into ministers without asking permission from the Prime Minister. It will be able to determine breaches and again recommend sanctions, all with full transparency and all free from political interference. No longer will the Prime Minister be able to hide behind his advisor to avoid scrutiny. Consideration will also be given about whether the Public Appointments Commissioner and Civil Service Commission should be brought under the new Ethics Commission's umbrella. And thirdly, we won't reinvent the wheel. Existing bodies that have been undermined and weakened by Tory ministers, namely ACOBRA and the Independent Advisor on Ministers' Interests, will be brought under the Ethics and Integrity Commission, operationally independent and free from government control. But the Ethics and Integrity Commission will coordinate and work with existing bodies and committees that do work. The Commission will be complementary, not competitive, creating a more coherent approach to public standards with a culture of integrity. The Committee on Standards in Public Life will continue to play a crucial role at the centre of the standards landscape, informing the work and recommendations made by the Ethics and Integrity Commission. And fourth, we will remove the power to appoint the ethics watchdog from the hands of the Prime Minister entirely. At the moment, the public, entirely understandably, think that politicians themselves are the judges of their own behaviour and let themselves get away with it. We will inject confidence into the system with a parliamentary backstop. There will be a robust appointments process with a nominated parliamentary committee involved with a commission required to report to Parliament annually. And finally, the risk of political capture or interference in the commission's work will be removed by putting the commission on a statutory footing. We are clear that the Ethics and Integrity Commission will not affect the parliamentary standards process. A clear separation between MP standards and ministerial standards is a central pillar of British democracy. And we know that British democracy is finely balanced. We're all too aware of the Jenga tower of unwritten constitution. Pull the wrong brick and risk creating a mountain of unintended consequences. So Labour will carry out a consultation to establish the next steps for the creation of the Ethics and Integrity Commission. We will involve experts, many of whom are in this room today, including the Committee on Standards in Public Life and existing public standards regulators as well as governance experts. But look, we know that no one is perfect, especially not politicians. We can and we will make mistakes. But what I have laid out today will put the right system in place to ensure accountability, transparency across government. And I don't think anyone in this room or online would disagree that the flaws in the system, present system, must be remedied. Labour aren't shying away from the challenge. And I know the people in this room and beyond aren't either. I just want to take this moment to say a huge thank you to the public servants working in the face of huge resistance to try and improve standards in public life. And I'm hopeful 
that this new body will make your lives easier, empowering you to do your job without resistance. Because this is personal for many of you. The scandals that I have mentioned have a detrimental impact on the reputation of the bodies that you work for. We want to change that, to create robust protections with independent transparent systems to take action against those that abuse the system. And I'm determined to make this happen and Labour has a track record of delivering in this area. Labour governments throughout history have made a habit of finding a mess and clearing it up. Three decades ago now, Labour opposition exposed the sleaze engulfing the Conservative Party and demanded better. In government, we legislated to create more robust systems from the Political Party Elections and Referendums Act to the Electoral Commission, the Freedom of Information Act and the Ministerial Code. The last Labour government did not hesitate to act decisively to clean up British public life. But over the last 13 years of a Tory government, the strong standards we have set have been chipped away. The Labour government made a lasting improvement on standards in public life, but it wasn't enough. When the last Labour government overhauled standards in government, they couldn't foresee the untold damage that could be easily caused by one government. A government full of ministers who thinks it's one rule for them and one rule for the rest of us. Our democracy cannot hinge on a gentleman's agreement. It needs independent and robust protection. A Labour government will clean up our politics and restore that trust with the Nolan principles at the heart of everything that we do. We must now urgently rebuild trust in our politics and in public office and in the government as a force for good. That means rebuilding the regime that's not working. The British people deserve so much better and it will be Labour and a Labour government that cleans up our politics and it will be a Labour government that restores the faith in public service, politicians serving the public and not themselves. It will be a Labour government that provides that leadership. It's time to stop the rot and make our politics a force for good again. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Angela. Uh, a lot to get into there. I'm going to ask a couple of questions and then we'll come to the, the media in the room. So I just want to pick up, in your speech, you talked about rules and enforcement and the creation of this new body. But everything over the last few years has shown us as well that rules and systems can only go so far. You need leadership in an organisation and that culture is set from the top. So how will you and Keir Starmer and other senior ministers in a possible future Labour government set this example to, to change how government standards are upheld? I absolutely agree with you. There's only so far that you can take rules. And I acknowledge also that people sometimes will break rules. But it's about what you do when that happens. And both myself and Kia have a very... We both come from a public sector background. I, I worked in local government and, and people know Kia's background. But I think when you serve the public, they put a huge amount of trust in you. So that culture needs to shift. People need to see um, being in Parliament is not... I'm going to get a great top job, I'm going to become Prime Minister. It's about serving the public and it's that cultural shift. And then when people break the rules, it's about what you're going to do about it. And what we've seen 
is that prime ministers over the last couple of years are not actually dealing effectively with that culture. And when those problems come about, they're not dealing with it effectively. If you, you know, take the situation with Dominic Rabb and Rishi Sunak, who promised us a change. Well, it was very clear what should happen. It, Dominic Rabb actually ended up resigning. He wasn't, you know, he, he fell on his own sword, so to speak. And, and that's not appropriate. What should happen is you should be very clear that if rules have been broken or you're found to have done something wrong, then there should be consequences for that. And at the moment, as you say, from the top, that's not happening. And I think that that has frustrated the public more than anything because they have to abide by the rules. In any workplace that anyone's at, they have to abide by the rules and they see politicians at the moment, in particular ministers in, in a position of privilege and power, are not abiding by those rules. And we think that that is incredibly important, that yes, there will be issues. I'm not saying the next Labour government won't have issues. I'm pretty certain we will. It's about how we deal with them and about making sure we take the right action. Cool, thank you. And one of the criticisms of the current ethics arrangement that you alluded to is that they aren't fully independent of government. No. You talked about you know, this independent commission and, a, and they'll be appointed separately from the prime minister, but you also talked about a parliamentary backstop. So I think that shows that you know, politics is always going to come into this. So how do, you, how do you ensure, how do you envisage that this commission is going to be fully independent? Yeah, so parliament will have a role in how they set up that uh, independent ethics commission. But I think the most important thing here is at the moment, it's at the prime minister's whim, whether they open an investigation, what they do after the investigation, and there's no transparency. So by having the independent um, ethics and integrity commission, having parliament and the annual review within that, and then also having that transparency within it, the prime minister would find it impossible then to, to not carry out those functions and do what is required because that transparency would be there. You can't then, you know, we've seen this, uh, you've got Conservative Prime Ministers who have desperately clung on to try and save other people and try and evade. But ultimately, once it goes into the public domain, they found it impossible. So if you've got that independent ethics and integrity commission who can initiate investigations independently, who are appointed through a parliamentary process independent of uh, the, the Prime Minister himself, then you can get in a position where I think it leads to more transparency and openness and it makes it impossible for somebody to try and hide behind. The current system at the moment gives far too much power to the Prime Minister and there's far too many uh, gaps where they can hide within that system and this is about trying to bring that transparency and that parliamentary oversight. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it does still come, politics do still come into it and of course we are elected representatives and when you're elected into parliament, you know, you, you, you expect politicians to act a, a certain way. You know, we're there, we're, we're, we've got a great privilege of representing our constituents and, and people expect us to do the right thing. But unfortunately, um, we found that, I, I think majority of parliamentarians are very good people and want to do the right thing. Um, but there are one or two that do this, the small minority, let every one of us down and the public think that politicians are all the same and that we're all in it for the wrong reasons, which I don't believe that. And I think we've got to raise the bar now and bring that transparency in so people can have that faith in what I believe majority of members of parliament 
are good people who want to do the right thing, and that, but you only hear about this minority that continually flaunt the rules, and it, and it lets all of us down. It makes us all you know, feel bad, because then everyone looks at us and thinks, well, you know, Angie's not in it to improve people's lives. She's just in it to make a load of money and get herself you know, up a greasy pole. And, 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 and that's really, you know, it, it feels bad, because that, that's not what our intentions are for majority of members of parliament. But when you see sleaze and scandal every five minutes, it, everyone thinks that's what politicians is and they it undermines democracy and people think well there's no point in voting there's no point in getting involved because they're all at it and they're all the same great i could ask a lot more questions but i'm going to go to the media so uh we've got catherine forster from the broadcast pool who's going to ask the first couple of questions uh, and there is a microphone so please do wait for that Thank you. um on public sector pay would Labour fund the pay review body's recommendations in full? And if so, how would you borrow to do that? And also, given that junior doctors are striking today, if some sectors don't receive the recommended increase, can you see why they'd strike again? And would you support that? OK, uh, thank you. Look, we're not in government. We haven't seen the finances. The, the, the government are refusing to get around the table and deal with the issue. The public sector pay review bodies will come up with their recommendations. If we were in government, we would get round the table, we would look at the finances and we'll do our best to try and find a resolution to it. This government haven't. They've been sleepwalking into the disaster, which has led us on to your other question around the junior doctor strike. We've got junior doctors, we've got nurses, we've got consultants, all taking industrial action because it's the current system is completely unsustainable. We've got massive vacancies because people are leaving now because of the circumstances we're in. We're paying agency fees, we're paying overtime rates. So the money is still being pumped into the system. It's just not being put in the right place. So the government really do have to get around the table and resolve these issues. We'd said we'd negotiate if we were in government now. We'd look at our finances, we would negotiate, we would stick to our fiscal rules. But we'd also said about reform as well. And one of the things that I found really agitating and I think the public feel it as well is when you see the amount of waste and the cronyism and the billions of pounds that have been wasted and then we haven't got the money to to fund our public services I, I think that really gripes on people so you've got to have a government that's willing to get around the table and negotiate but also a government that is in the field in the action and uh, are doing the job properly so that every pound that we have is spent effectively and efficiently and at the moment we've, we're not seeing that so the public are angry and the public sector workers at the moment who have had 13 years of austerity have seen a cost of living crisis that spiralled, a government suggesting that they're the problem with inflation when the IMF has clearly stated that's not the case and, and being told that they've just got to lump it at the same time. Um, they, they can't continue in their jobs that they're doing. Many have been forced out, are, are moving abroad and are working abroad and we can't sustain that situation. So the government really have to get around the table and resolve the issue. Okay, uh, more media questions. So we've got Henry Riley from LBC. Thank you very much, Angela. Um, just on Dominic Raab, who you referenced earlier on, of course, he was investigated, he eventually lost his job. Do you think senior ministers who are under investigation, whether by the Standards um, Committee or by the ethics advisor should remain in their ministerial jobs, so for example as, as high as Deputy Prime Minister. And you spoke about Tory sleaze quite a lot in, in your remarks. I wondered if you thought would admit that sleaze is something that happens on both sides. I mean, John Prescott, who you referenced sort of countless times in the House of Commons yesterday, was investigated and rebuked by the Standards Commissioner. So do you accept it's a problem on all sides? Thank you. 
I will take a couple more media questions and then come to Angela if that's all right. So, uh, Chloe Chaplin from the I. Thanks. Hi, Angela. Um, on the topic of ethics and standards, in light of recent events at the BBC this week, do you think that this overhaul of standards and, and expectations generally needs to be expanded to kind of more public bodies in the UK? And Sophie Huskisson from the Mirror. Thank you. Hi, Angela. So obviously Labour have been talking a lot about their education policies recently as well. You've spoken publicly about how you had free school meals when you were a child and that it was a lifeline for you. So do you personally think that Labour should commit to free school meals for all primary school students? Okay, thank you. Um, so Henry, in terms of should they stay in post, again, the Independent Ethics and Integrity Committee would have to look at the circumstances. I mean, it's very difficult if somebody's accused of something as serious as, as what Dominic Raab was accused of, and it was in multiple places, for them to, to remain in the office. Is, you know, in any other walk of life, any other office place, you probably wouldn't be remaining in the office. So in those circumstances, it might be appropriate for them to step back whilst that investigation's happening. I know that's a challenge because you like to think people are innocent until proven guilty. But there again, in our employment across multiple of employers, if a serious allegation is made, then to protect people and to protect the integrity of that investigation, people are suspended and not in their office so there is a question mark of when that when that kicks in but I think it's we expect it in every other office we should be expecting it for our civil servants and for people that work around parliament for too often the what I consider to be the norm of British law employment law in this country just kind of doesn't happen in part it's like it's its own little bubble and the the, the conventions that I consider to be what every what everyone expects in a workplace just doesn't happen in Parliament so we've got to do something about that but also recognizing the uniqueness of of the circumstances but I, I don't think we've got that balance right yet so therefore the uh, ethics commission commission would be looking at that and seeing how they, they think that's appropriate. I think that's the right way to go. And um, the and, and Henry, I accept it happens on both. I do accept it happens on both sides. But as I said uh, before, it's about what you do about it. That's the issue. I accept that bad behaviour happens. It happens in every workplace. It happens in every political party. The question is, and when me and Keir took over as leader and deputy leader, we had a problem in our own party. We had the EHRC that was looking at us. The question for us was recognising that it happens and then what you're going to do about it. Are you confident you've got the processes to, to do that? Which is kind of the point that was made about uh, BBC as well and would I expand it to more public bodies? I think at the moment we're concentrating on cleaning up politics. That's where, that's where I'm at. But I think in, in relation to areas like the BBC, I've been doing media all morning. I've said that one of the things they need to do is show they've got the right policy in place. Be transparent about your policies and procedures. What do you do if you get a complaint of what a particular nature? Taking out individuals, but what do you do? And then do you apply it? Do you apply it in the culture of the organisation? Many businesses, we have whistleblowing policies in this country and everything else, but do you really apply that in how you implement those policies and procedures or do you just have a book somewhere that's on a shelf and it's, and it's never to be seen until HR come into your room and say, what are you doing about this? So it's about creating that culture and being transparent about how you do it and, and not just waiting for complaints to come over and you think, oh, 
crisis, what do we do, have, have we got the right procedure, is actually embedding that within your organisation and the best organisations understand that and do that. And then the question on free school meals, to us it was about priorities, but we've been dead clear about the fiscal rules that we have to keep to. And our priority was to get the breakfast clubs. And you, you talked about my experience, and you're absolutely right, but I, I, I talk about the fact that for the first half of my day, I was not looking for education, I was looking at how do I get to dinner and what I'm gonna be eating, because I was waiting for my free school meal. So my lessons before my school dinner, I was basically not with it because I'm, I'm hungry and I wasn't concentrating very well. So we've looked at the evidence and know that the free breakfast club is going to have the biggest impact. And that's why we've prioritised to do that. And we, and we haven't got an endless supply of money. We know that the economy is in a terrible place. We've had the latest forecasts today out, which are, again, are, are not very good. So we know that if we do get into government, the situation economically is not going to be a great one. So we have to do priorities. And the priority in that area, which I agree with, is about giving free school breakfast rather than free school meals to every child. I, I would love to do that. But at the moment, we're saying that breakfast, and I, I absolutely agree with that, that policy. I think it's the right thing to do. Great, thank you. Um, Henry Dye from The Guardian, and then I'll go to the floor for questions. Hi, good morning. Thanks very much. Um, two questions. This sounds like there's a lot of work to get done very quickly, but is the ambition to have something done in the first 100 days to have the Commission set up? And uh, secondly, more broadly on parliamentary rules, do you personally think that Parliament's current £70,000 threshold for shares in a single company is appropriate, and do you think it should be changed? Okay, uh, thank you. Um, in terms of, look, we want to do it as quickly as possible. I'm not committing to the first 100 days because we want to get it right. My number one principle here, and that's why I said about the consultation on it and the Jenga of don't, don't do unintended consequences. The one thing I don't want to do is bull in a china shop unintended consequences and not get it right because the public will be even more exasperated and so will the people who are brilliantly trying to uphold ethics and standards in public life. So we, we will be embarking on a consultation. I, I'm, I make no apologies for that. I plagiarise a lot of my great stuff um, and that's because I don't know everything. But I am absolutely determined to get this one right and then implement it as quickly as possible. There are things that we can do immediately, even under the old system. If Keir Starmer was Prime Minister, he could act in a very different way to what the, the Prime Minister has today and what the Prime Ministers of yesterday were doing. It, it, so that is a cultural problem that we could change instantly and we'll see an instant improvement, I'm pretty certain of. But in terms of our process of bringing in this commission, it will be done as quickly and as speedy as we can, but I won't put speed over making sure that it's right. We've got to get it right because it's got to last, as when John Major did it back in the day, it's lasted three decades. I want this to be resilient enough to last and it, and it cannot be messed up by me trying to speed that process. So I will take as long as it needs to. And, and I'm sorry, what was the other question? Shareholdings. Shareholdings. I mean, again, that we've just got to make it confident that people think that we're, in, we're motivated in the right way. And, and that goes for a lot of what MPs, and I've talked about MPs' second jobs and that we should, we're going to tighten the rules on things like that. We've just got to get in a position where people can see 
that our motivation and what we're in there for and how we conduct ourselves, which is why I talk about the revolving door into lobbying as well, is that we're motivated by doing the public service and the public job. So I think transparency on things is absolutely appropriate. We should be as transparent as we possibly can and that we should be also making sure the rules apply that show that our motivation is about how we serve the public as opposed to how we are able to help ourselves. So I'm all in favour of trying to uh, do more to you know, uphold the rules. People should be able to, to have life outside of Parliament, but also the transparency is in there so that people can understand that people have got that as well. Great. OK, questions in the room. Um, I will take them in rounds of three and we'll go online. So, gentleman in the middle there. Thank you. Hi, Dave Penman, General Secretary of the FDA that represents uh, civil servants. Uh, Angela, you talked about this commission essentially subsuming the role of the independent advisor, being able to initiate investigations and determine breaches and make recommendations, but it stops at recommendations. Are you suggesting that that would still be the case that the Prime Minister would ultimately be the arbiter of any sanction on a minister who is found to have broken the ministerial code? And I ask that because you talked about transparency and that, uh, uh, and that being key here. But we had a transparent recommendation from the independent advisor about Pretty Patel. But because we had a bad chap mm. making the determination, they were prepared to ignore that. So transparency cannot solve all problems. And if this is a system that's not just about the next Labour government, but mm. a potential future other government, it may well uh, have a bad chap. Uh, in charge. So, who's going to? Uh, how are you going to ensure that that politics does not play a part in the final decisions? And my second question is: You talked a lot about the issues about politicians and ACOBA and this body um, subsuming ACOBA. Is the intention that this body would also subsume the rules in relation to civil servants, so it will take over all those responsibilities for ACOBA, or are you thinking of something separate between politicians and civil servants when it comes to business appointments? Great, and do you want to pass the mic to the lady next to you? Um, to what extent does greater regulation of unelected advisers form a part of rebuilding ministerial trans transparency and accountability for the Labour Party? Thank you. And gentleman here in the grey jacket. Chris Smith from Public Finance, um, but I'm asking a question on behalf of police officers. Here is the question. Why cannot other people in public life be held to the same standards as we are given there's financial vetting, background checks, restrictions and bans on second jobs, restrictions on gambling and obviously a ban on drug taking. And yet the people that judge their standards, particularly police and crime commissioners, have almost no checks and no, no scrutineering of their own conduct. Surely the simplest thing to do would simply take the police standard and apply it to everybody in the public sector. Thank you very much. And well, Angela. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, in terms of Dave's points, thank you for them. And yes, there, there, there will still be a role for the Prime Minister, but because of they won't have the veto on starting an investigation and then the recommendations again the prime minister at the moment appoints his advisor who does the investigations it will be done through the independent ethics uh, and integrity commission and then those recommendations will come to parliament that committee will also be um, it won't be appointed by the prime minister as well and that annual uh, accounting for it i think they will put 
very strong processes in place that will mean it's it's impossible to do that. And uh, I don't I don't think I think that will give us far more protections against that blatant, fragrant. You've done something wrong. So what? I'm just moving on from it. I think it will be virtually impossible to do that under these these new processes. Uh, but politics is in there. I can't get away from that unless you get rid of all those politicians. I'm not going to sit here in this room and say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to sort it out and I'm going to leave the politicians out of it because ultimately we're a democracy and we're elected and, 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 we're, and we're elected to govern. And that means that there is some element of that within what we do, but by putting these checks and balances in, like when we, for example, the last Labour government put freedom of information, I mean, that was transformative, the Freedom of Information Act, in terms of cleaning up uh, what was happening there. So I, I do think it will take us to a, a, a better level to where we are now. Does it completely insulate us? No, because politicians will always be in the mix, but I think it's much stronger uh, than what we have. And then in terms of uh, the civil service, no, I'm not at the moment looking uh, the civil service element of it, but we are consulting, and I know you'd have a lot to say about that, and and we'll probably have a lot more knowledge than I do in terms of what you think and how you think that would how you think that would work. But I do not see the civil service as the problem at the moment, or that there's a problem in the conduct of the civil service, shall we say? I see the problem at the moment is how ministers and how the prime minister is behaving, as opposed to civil service code, shall I say? That that that's where my focus is. Um, and then in terms of, I, I'm really sorry, I didn't catch what you were you were saying about something about independent regulation of unelected advisors and how that would improve sales. yeah i mean i said quite a lot of stuff about um not only that about lobbying as well and how how that works there is a lot of work to be done in that field and i think that once again that transparency is incredibly important in that um and, and the whole culture of how Parliament operates on that sort of basis, whether it's internship or independent advisors coming in or trying to get, um, you know, if, we, if you want a deep dive piece of work done, you, you've got to find someone to do it. You, you just don't. An MP doesn't have the resource. If I want to do a piece of research into something, I, you know, I've got the House of Commons Library and I've got, you know, four staff. But beyond that, you really are at the mercy of. So there has to be some level of transparency about what lobbying is, what, what advisors are doing, who's paid, who's not. And, and I think one of the most important things about that is transparency in that process and about what constitutes certain people and that people understand that that's what the role that they're playing. And um, interested police officers and the, the drug taking and everything else, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I can totally understand that the public would see that as well. Uh, we're not police officers. We're members of parliament. I think we are different. That doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't be held to a very strong set of rules, hence why I'm saying that this new um, Ethics and Integrity Commission should be set up to ensure that happens. And we've been tightening the rules up. They're separate rules for MPs. This, the, the, the announcement I'm making today is in particular around ministers and people who hold government office. But there is a set of standards for MPs as well, and we're seeing them more and more enforced, and quite rightly so. Um, and we have a high standard, and we should expect a high standard, and that the rules are there. They shouldn't be drug-taking and everything else. The rules quite categorically now ensure that that shouldn't be happening and that people should be held account to, to prevent that from happening. But um, I also feel that, you know, in your past, if you've done... 
a misdemeanor, that shouldn't stop you from holding public office. We're human beings and life experience is really, if you're a member of parliament, lived life experience is incredibly important. If you've had your house repossessed or you've, you know, you've, had a, you've been bankrupt in the past or something like that, I could give you an incredible amount of life experience to understand what constituents' problems face. So there is a fine balance for me when it comes to members of parliament, is that actually I don't want them all to be like have a completely squeaky clean past. Sometimes adversity that you've had in your past gives you experience and life knowledge to be able to represent and improve the system that ultimately we're trying to improve people's lives and give them greater opportunities. So uh, I think there's a balance to be had, but there's clear rules at the moment that, that should be enforced and people should have confidence that their public servants are, are adhering to them. Great, thank you. I'm going to take some questions from online. So there's three and then I'll come back to the room. So from Rose Zussman from Transparency International. She says, we don't have a complete picture of lobbying in the UK, and as a result, lobbying scandals continue to be a feature of our politics. Do you agree there is a strong case for an expanded statutory lobbying register? Yeah, that's Okay, easy. great, there we go. <laughs> um, Josiah Mortimer asks, how would Labour improve transparency in the House of Lords, given that dis disclosure requirements for financial interests are lower than for MPs? Would your Integrity Commission cover the Lords? It would look at that. We can, again, we're consulting about how we're able to to improve. So we can look at that as part of that consultation and about the expansion of it and how it works with a cobra and everything. So it's it's something that we certainly haven't ruled out. Great, thank you. And then Susan Hawley from Spotlight on Corruption. Uh, we've already talked about your time frame for introducing this new commission, but she also asks, has it has Labour got a plan for funding this new body? Well, I mean, because of this new body will ultimately be absorbing the spaghetti of what we have currently, there, there won't be a significant funding situation for it. It's more about bringing it together and giving it a more statutory footing and giving it the powers and, and the transparency and the independence to do the job. So it, it's, it's not creating extra, it's actually bringing in and tightening up and strengthening what we currently have. Great, thank you. Okay, more questions in the room. Um, Lord Evans at the front here. Jonathan Evans, Chair of the Committee on Standards in Public Life. Thank you very much. Um, a question and an observation, if I could. First question, uh, you've talked a lot and put a big emphasis on the independence of the Ethics and Integrity Commission, and it sounds as though you see that uh, coming from its relationship with Parliament. So does that mean that we should really see this as a significant increase in the parliamentary um, oversight of the activities of ministers? Is that the, is that the overarching intention of, of what you're proposing? And an observation that given the, complica the, the, the complications and the constitutional kind of um, implications of some of this, I think you're very wise to uh, not necessarily to rush implementation and to think through and consult very carefully uh, to make sure that any proposals that actually come to fruition are um, very carefully designed so that they don't trip up at a later stage because there are unintended consequences, as our committee knows, in this area. Thank you. Um, there's a lady at the back there. Good morning, uh, Gabby Richardson from Serco. Um, I was just wondering where you see the relationship changing between uh, private sector and government in terms of public procurement and whether any regulations may change on this in the future. And then we'll go to Peter. Uh, Peter Riddle, I've got various hats, but the relevant one is as former 
um, Commissioner for Public Appointments. And if I could take forward the, the question Johnson Evans um, posed. As a commissioner, I was always conscious of the balance between elected and unelected. Mm. I mean, you've addressed it. I'm, I'm, I'm very struck by the, the, the way you've developed your thinking since the previous speech, separating off CSPL and, and, and that. But one of the dilemmas strikes me is, and it certainly hit me when I was an appointment commissioner, I was aware I wasn't elected and ministers were the elected people. And that is there a danger that the new Ethics and Integrity Commission, for all the positives, you know, of clearing it up, statutory basis, and so on, will actually be in danger of almost being too powerful and too resented by the elected, both ministers and MPs. There's a dilemma there, um, because you, can, you, know, you see it all the time within, within the House yeah. with the balance between uh, unelected advisors and elected. I just wondered at that. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Um, in terms of Jonathan's point, yeah, I'll be picking your brains a lot, <laughs> I warn you, um, because uh, you're absolutely right. There is the rule of unintended consequences, so that's why we will be consulting. But my overarching aim, and you get that from the speech and what I'm trying to do, is to recognise, and it comes to Peter's point, recognise the elected which then that is the rather than the prime minister than parliament being involved in that process so that you've still got that and that integrity of of the elected position but also understanding that the current system at the moment puts too much power in one place so it's about trying to get that balance and being able to do what I'm trying to set out to achieve, you get that from the motion of what I'm saying, you understand the challenges and the problems that we face but striking that right balance and at the moment we haven't got that balance unfortunately you could argue that's because we've had bad chaps <laughs> and you could say well we'll just get good chaps and we'll be all happy on the good chaps situation but I don't think that that's enough and I certainly don't think it's enough for the public and I think that with your great minds and the work that you're doing there is a lot that we can do to improve it and that and that's why I'm moving in in that direction so I do see parliament having more of an oversight in it we try to now how many urgent questions have I done on this topic? Uh, you know, we try to now, but I think a more structured approach to it is, is what, we, what we need. And we've seen the success of that, actually, with some of the stuff that we've seen with the committee in recent times uh, and, and how that can be held to account. So that, that, that's good. Uh, in terms of um, the point around the private sector and procurement, we've got a procurement bill going through Parliament at the moment, and I'm really disappointed that the the government haven't pushed more on social value. They refuse to put it on the face of the bill. I want to see public procurement working positively with the private sector on the basis of you know, simple rules like trade union recognition, like what you're going to add to the local area, what you're putting in skills and training, and having them as part of a decision-making on, on contracting out as well. And far too often, I think, when it comes to public procurement, those things are not considered as weighty as what's the bottom line, how much did it cost your cheat, we'll go with that one. And actually having a real in-depth sort of scrutiny of, of other areas of value that you get from a, from a contract, I think is really important. So I would say that the next Labour government will be looking more about that than just the, the necessary bottom line and we'll be encouraging more of that because we've got to skill people up, we've got to invest for the long term and we've got to invest in our communities. So private sector that want to do that, at the moment many of those organisations say to me they feel penalised through the procurement process. I want to encourage it through the procurement process and reward those type of employers through that. And uh, Peter, I think I've answered quite a lot of it. I don't think it'll be too powerful because it's not doing everything. I think it's about bringing it into one place, but I do think there is a, 
a need to always recognise the elected. That, that's what I've said. I mean, I can't, unless you take the politicians out of it, which that's a question of, well, well, does that then become democracy? I mean, I was a Unison rep and I was a lay member. I was an elected member and Unison also have a staff structure. And often it was a very much a live debate in the union is the tail wagging the dog or is the dog wagging the tail? Uh, I, so I can, I can really understand from my decades of lived experience that, that challenge. Uh, but I do think that that transparency and the measures that we're putting in place and having that independence of the committee to say it sheds light on it and, and, and I think it, it doesn't make, it makes it more stronger and more powerful, but I don't think it overrides the elected and the respect of the elected position. However, I would say that elected politicians need to earn that respect and they've lost it a lot at the moment because of their actions. So it's about regaining that, that trust as well. Great, let's do one more round of questions. I think we've got about five minutes left, so please do keep your questions short. Um, Adam Bianco from Byline Times. Angela, you spoke about replacing COBA and bringing in the power to impose fines on ministers who breach appointment rules. Can you just say a bit more about how that would work and what kind of level those sanctions would be? Because obviously most ministers that leave public office go to quite lucrative roles. So if it was quite a low sanction, then that arguably wouldn't have be much of a deterrent effect. Thank you. Lady behind. Yeah. Hello, Elizabeth from Protect, the national whistleblowing charity. Um, Angie, do you think a stronger whistleblowing culture would support the work of your new ethics committee? And would you like to see reform of the Public Interest Disclosure Act to increase whistleblower protections? Great, thank you. And the gentleman there with the phone. Hi there, uh, Nia Mansala, Chartered Management Institute. One thing I want to say first is I thought your PMQ's performance yesterday was the best so far. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and second, uh, recently we've seen a lot of misconduct and even mismanagement of civil servants and MP staff from ministers and MPs. And at CMI we're wondering if you think there's a space for management and leadership training for people in public office to improve decision making and create better chaps in office. Thank you. And we'll do one last one. Pete Saul from BBC News. I'm going to have another go on pay, I'm afraid. Um, you said that you, know, you wanted the government to get around the table. That's kind of not really the point today. It's whether or not they accept the recommendations from the independent pay review bodies. So uh, on principle, would a Labour government fully accept those rises as recommended by the independent pay review bodies, which we know are between 6 and 6.5%? And if so, how would you fund it? Angela. Okay, thank you. Um, in terms of Andrew's point um, around, look, a COBRA, we've said we'd strengthen it, we'd put it, uh, this, we'd, we'd bring it into the new Independent Ethics and Integrity Commission and we'd put it on a statutory footing. So, first of all, it's about its given teeth and, and, and it's strengthened in, in, in what the Ethics uh, Commission will do and we'll consult on the level of fines and it may be different for for varying different misdemeanours, you know, not everything is the same and, and, and therefore you, you, it might not just be like that's one thing and then we're just going to say that for everything because as you rightly say, sometimes it can, it can vary in, in, in what happens. So part of this consultation would be around how, how we implement that and it will be for the uh, Independent Ethics and Integrity Commission to, to look at that in the round and to look at the circumstances of it. But the whole point is at the moment that it doesn't really have the teeth that, it's, that it needs, so it does have to be strengthened, and we're determined to do that and to consult on how, how, we, how we get that done. But that, that's, that's our proposals as they currently stand. Um, and Elizabeth's point on, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of said it before, I think, you know, the question mark of whether 
we need more legal protection for whistleblowers. I think it's also about the culture of how whistleblowers are treated and, and, and how, how you could have all the laws in the world, but if then we are not able to have a culture in this country that celebrates when somebody whistleblows and says this is very important and it's good and important for our democracy that if something's going wrong and somebody does the right thing and whistleblows we've got to we've got to change the culture in in this in the in the country that says we celebrate that and we encourage it as well as have the laws that back that up and and protect people but laws only take you so far we saw that with blacklisting you know the workers that were blacklisted and trade unions I say that because a personal experience of working in the movement and you know you, we outlawed blacklisting but it doesn't mean to say it doesn't exist it still exists to this day people still blacklist they just don't put it on a physical list so there's ways I think of how we try and challenge that and, uh, and, and how we try and uh, protect whistleblowers but I think that it's incredibly important to have um, whistleblowers and to encourage whistleblowing as part of our democracy because uh, you have to have truth to power and sometimes you have to be courageous if you see something wrong you have to be courageous and encouraged and protected to do the right thing and to speak out about that. Um, in terms of um, Ian's point, I, I agree with you. Yeah, we should have training. I mean, the politicians come from all different walks of life, you know. Um, some of us have... I come from a trade union background. I, I've, I've managed staff before as well. Um, as a member of parliament, not only are you doing legislation, you suddenly become like a small business. You suddenly have to learn all these new skills, self-assessment, you know, how to employ staff, how to manage budgets. And MPs don't, don't have those skills. Some do, some don't. And I, I do think that, that a, a more robust training programme for people is important. But I also think the culture of parliament at the moment is you literally don't have five minutes so you've got to put it up, you've got to make time for it and you've got to make it important. So you've, you've got to make sure that people can also access it because at the moment I think people work so many hours that sometimes the training is available but it gets lost. So it's about how you put that up the priority list as well. And then um, in terms of the question on pay, look... The, the government, I, I haven't seen the books that the government have got. I haven't, we, we don't have access to the Treasury and where they're up to now. I've made it very clear. If the Labour, if we were in power today, we would look at the situation. We would get round the table. We would obviously look at what the uh, pay review bodies have said and what their recommendations are. And we'd look at how we negotiate that and get a settlement on it. And, and, and that's the best that I can give you at the moment. We're not in government. I haven't seen the Treasury books. I know they're saying it's, it's terrible. We can't afford it. But all, I've made it categorically clear that we also can't afford the current situation where many people are leaving the profession, that we've got huge vacancies, we've got add-on costs with agency and overtime rates because we're having to pay people to come in and do that work. So it's actually incredibly inefficient of the government to do it the way they're doing because they're still spending huge amounts of money but not in the right place. So we would look at that and look at how we can meet, um, meet the demands of the staff who have worked incredibly hard and find a, find a, find a way forward that suits both that it's very clear that we stick to our fiscal rules because they're non-negotiable we have to stick to our fiscal rules and we're very clear on that but I think there's room in the middle if I'm honest and I think the government have failed to be able to negotiate that and recognise actually the crisis that we face in our public services at the moment. Great well I think we will have to leave it there so um, thank you very much to Angela thank you, thank you everyone uh, for joining us and thank you
Um, just to say, our next public event is on Monday when we'll be talking about how central government should be organised to deliver levelling up. And uh, we will have a video and sound recording on our website. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you.